0: Coming to the Agony Column podcast, John Scalzi had an obvious objective when he wrote Old Man's War.
1: Male readers were mostly, wow, you blowed up things real good, which of course I do because I like to blow things up real good.
0: But there was a secret to the wider appeal.
1: A lot of the women readers were like, you have a love story in there and I really appreciate it.
0: The universal appeal of the universe, next on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.
1: Let me tell you of the worlds I've left behind. Earth you know. Everyone knows it. It's the birthplace of humanity, although at this point not many consider it to be our home planet. Phoenix has had that job since the colonial union was created and became the guiding force for expanding and protecting our race in the universe. But you never forget where you came from. Being from Earth in this universe is like being a small-town kid who gets on the bus, goes to the big city, and spends his entire afternoon gawking at all the tall buildings. Then he gets mugged for the crime of marveling at this strange new world, which has such things in it, because the things in this town don't have much time or sympathy for the new kid, and they're happy to kill him for what he's got in his suitcase. The small-town kid learns this fast because he can't go home again. I spent 75 years on Earth, living mostly in the same small Ohio town and sharing most of that life with the same woman. She died and stayed behind. I lived and I left. John Scalzi is a journalist whose blog, The Whatever, is one of
0: the most popular sites on the Internet. These writings have been collected in You're Not Fooling Anyone When You Take Your Laptop to the Coffee Shop, Scalzi on Writing, He's also the author of the non-fiction works that include The Rough Guide to Sci-Fi Movies, The Rough Guide to the Universe, and The Rough Guide to Money Online. His debut novel, Old Man's War, was nominated for science fiction's prestigious Hugo Award. His other science fiction novels include Agent to the Stars, The Android's Dream, and The Ghost Brigades. His new novel is The Last Colony. Welcome to the program, John. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. John, you started out as a journalist. Tell us a little bit. And you had a syndicated column. This is a pretty big deal in the writing world.
1: Yes. The syndicated column was actually very interesting. I started off as a movie critic and a couple years in, I decided to bluff my editor and tell him that I had a job somewhere else and that if he wanted me to stay, he had to give me a, a column as well. He took the bait, which was good because I was a total bluff. And if he had said, no, good luck to you and your future endeavors, I would have been... I would have been doomed, so that was sort of exciting. But yes, it was a big deal because at the time I had a column. I was like 24 years old, and so I was I was very young to to be in that particular position. Uh, unfortunately, I've gone back in time and and looked at the columns, and uh, uh, you can tell I was 24 when I was writing them. <laughs> so, so what was your column about? Was it like, was it the newspaper equivalent of a blog? Indeed, it was the the whole idea of it was. Um, me basically writing on whatever I wanted to. This was back in the early 90s, and there was a panic among the newspapers about whether or not uh, that whole Generation X would uh, be reading the newspapers when they got older. Um, And as it happened, I was right smack dab in that demographic. So they said, you're Generation X. Write about the stuff Generation X wants to hear. And so I wrote a little bit about politics. I wrote a little bit about my personal life. I wrote a little bit about culture i proposed to my wife in my newspaper column which was actually very popular we got a uh, spike in circulation that day so you know did did all those sorts of things and so yes it was very much a proto whatever and in fact the reason i started writing the whatever back in 1998 was that i was no longer writing for newspapers and i wanted one day to be able to get back to that uh, field. And so I said, well, as long as I'm not doing it here, I will do it online just to keep sharp. Now, the irony is, 10 years on, um, I don't uh, have a newspaper column, but the, the blog is popular enough that it's pretty much the same thing. Tell us a little bit about your decision to start writing a blog. Back in
0: 98, was it actually called a blog or was it a website?
1: Back in the old days. Back in 1998, no, we didn't call it a blog. Blog I think started becoming popular in the 21st century. Back then, we called them online diaries or journals. Those were the two things that that we called them. And of course there was an argument back and forth about whether or not they were really diaries or why some people weren't writing diaries, they were writing something else. All these arguments of definition which have gone on even now. It was it was interesting to do it in that time because the number of people was still relatively small. It was you were still able to pretty much know everybody who wrote uh, a journal back in the back in the day, and if you got two hundred or three hundred people visiting your your journal, you were doing very very well. You know, it's like oh, everybody knows him. Hundreds of people visit his site a day. Now, of course, these days where you have someone like *Independent* or *Daily cost who get half a million people visiting on a daily basis or two hundred thousand, um, these little numbers don't seem to add up to much, but. In the early days, it was all very exciting. It was, the, the you know, the idea of a little bit of the pioneering spirit. And, of course, we didn't know that this was going to become the thing that it, it became. It was a bunch of geeks sitting there typing about their cats, you know, or whatever else was coming to, uh, off the top of their mind. It It's still pretty much the same thing, but the the cultural pho- phenomenon that it became was years in the future, and it was, like I said, just a small community of enthusiasts. It wasn't that different, I would suppose, than ham radio was in the 1930s or 40s, you know, a bunch of people just wiggling the dial, seeing if they could pick up someone from Tampa. What
0: software were you using back then? Because now we have a whole uh, industry devoted to blogging
1: software. I wasn't using software. I rolled my own HTML code. Wow. Um <laughs> and that was that that was the way it was done i mean my very first website was in 1994 um that was i got a mac performa and i a 9600 baud modem which was smoking hot back then um and i plugged in and i got to yahoo which had the random button you could actually press a random button and it would send you some random place on the web and my girlfriend, who is now my wife, was, I'm going away for the weekend. I was like, great. And I pressed the random button. And she came back 36 hours later. And I was still there pressing the button like a rat at the feeder bar. And I was like, I got to get into this. And so that's uh, the only way to do it is not only did you have to roll your own HTML code, but to upload it, you had to know Unix code. You know, So I was sitting there going... Chmod seven fifty five upload you know all these things and um, it was the extent of my true geeky you know self. I felt so empowered to have known just a little bit of Unix.
0: When you started writing this, and you were just trying to recreate your your column, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, as it started to grow, how did you change your site and change your software
1: and change? Your, did it change your writing? I think it did. One of the things that's interesting about columns is that they're very interactive, but they're very interactive for the medium of newspaper, which is that you write the column, you get feedback in the terms of letters and phone calls and all that. Um, But it takes time. There's a time delay between when you write something, when it gets printed, and then when people start to respond. And it can take days or weeks or however long it takes. When you put something out on the Internet, the response is instantaneous. And so what you end up doing is you end up having much more of a dialogue with the people who come to your site. So the dynamic of what you're writing changes because you are not only writing what you think, but you're responding to what other people think as well. One of the things that I found really was really exciting was when I finally switched over to movable type because I was hand-rolling my own code until 2003. Then I switched over to movable type, and one of the things that movable type allows for is comment threads. And overnight, the number of people visiting my site doubled. You know, the comments were I would have... Two or three dozen comments immediately, and it it had a huge effect. It had a huge impact on how writing was done, and I do think that that was the difference. Because in the early days, it was just people talking out into the void. Um, once we got standardized blog software like Movable Type or WordPress or Blogger, the void started speaking back, and it had a multitude of voices.
0: I'd like you to talk about the kind of. Uh online humor that I think shapes your, your fiction and everything. Tell us a little bit about it, how your column, your original newspaper column, maybe created a sense of humor and how that was modified by once you got online.
1: Well, my, to begin with, it should be understood that my writing heroes in terms of when I was looking at columns were people like H.L. Mencken, uh, Molly Ivins, PJ O'Rourke, uh, uh, various people were not necessarily concerned about their political points of views, but just how they expressed it. They were very humorous. And th- the great thing about that was because they were humorous, they were able to slide in a lot of very interesting points in a sort of way that people would accept. They weren't, it was confrontational, but it was confrontational and funny, which is easier to take than just merely confrontational. Um, so when I was young, I basically shamelessly aped them. And it's obvious from my early writing that that's what I was doing. As you go along, it, it it becomes refined. You generate your own voice. But again, because of what goes on in the internet, it's its own little self-contained world um, that has its own little bit of bits of humor here and there and you learn to pick it up and you in the sort of a community sharing thing and it just it just leaks through it it becomes a community that that you're part of you know it's you know you know its quirks you know its little secret hand codes you know everything uh, about it and what ends up is some of it just leaks into your writing and, and into your conversation i mean we see that now with so many of the things like abbreviations like wtf or lol which are crazily enough leaking into common conversation i had i was talking with a friend and uh, i made a joke and instead of laughing she said lol and i'm like what's wrong with you (laughs) why did you just do that she goes i'm so sorry i've just i'm so used to typing it that now i say it so it's it it it's really beginning to have an impact i have not put lol in any of my books yet but certainly a lot of the quick jab uh humor that i do the the quick um humor the the back and forth banter comes from uh both uh the tradition of column writing quick response quick comment and also the internet where everybody you know tries to get in the next funniest thing possible as quickly as they can you have to be careful with that because it's stylized. And when you're doing things like dialogue, you actually need to make sure that people who are talking actually sound like they're talking to each other instead of typing to each other. And that is a, a difficulty sometimes. But that's always been a difficulty with writers even before the internet.
0: One thing about the internet that's really different from newspaper writing is the ability to revise what you've published after you've published it. it unfortunately, it, for better or worse, it's not just done and out there. Tell mm. us a little bit
1: about how that has changed what you write. Do you go back and revise what you say? or? Yes and no. Sometimes I will... It's great for me because the first time I post something, it is usually rife with uh, grammatical and spe- spelling errors, and I look like an idiot. So I go back, and I change it, and then it's done, and I feel better about that. But if you do change the substance, um, then there's a problem because what happens is particularly if you have a comment thread, people will be referring to things that no longer exist. It's uh, It can be um, sort of Orwellian. you know. I never said we were at war with East Asia. So what has happened is that there there is a sort of uh, the way that people deal with it, and I think it may have originated with Boing Boing, but I'm not sure. Is that if you change something substantially, either you say "update," I've made this change, or you use the strike through uh, tag in HTML so that people can see what you had previously written, and then they can see your correction or your change. And now, of course, people will use that for ironic intent, where they will say something sort of outrageous, and they'll strike through, and then they'll say something much more moderate. You know, it's like, oh, I've changed this. And this actually goes back to in the early days, if you were on a uh, BBS, right, and you uh, wanted, you were typing something, and you had to backspace. Well, if you backspaced, it wouldn't actually show up; it would show it would be a caret sign and an H, right? So the same sort of humor was instead of having the strike through, they would have carrot h carrot h carrot #H, h, and you would say something immoderate, and you know, oh, but now I'm saying something moderate. So this is the tradition of uh, fake saying what you really mean and then saying something moderate has has a long and complex tradition on the internet.
0: One thing that's interesting is that nowadays your words can just be easily grabbed and remixed into somebody else's work. Sure. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you feel about that and your experiences with that, good and or bad.
1: I don't really have too much of a problem with it. One of the things that is a big concern for a lot of writers who don't actually spend a lot of time on the Internet uh, is that they're worried that someone will take the words that they've written and they'll steal them and say, these are my words or this is cool and so on. There are two things that are going on here. One of the things that's very nice about the internet is that you gain um, some bit of credibility by acknowledging your links. If you say, I've said, you know, if you find an interesting quote, you make the quote and then you link back to where you found the quote so people can see the entire context. And this is automatic for people who've been uh, online for years and years and years. What happens is um, you get credibility for the fact that you cite. Um, So the idea that people will steal things is unrealistic in terms of how the mechanics of sharing on the Internet work. People like to point to all the cool places where they've found stuff. Over the course of a dozen years that I've been online, um, I've been plagiarized twice as far as I know. And in both cases, somebody else found the plagiarism and said, hey, these are John Scalzi's words. He wrote this and here's where he wrote it, and this is when he wrote it, and you better acknowledge that he wrote it, otherwise there's going to be trouble. So in that respect, I didn't have to do anything. The rest of the world took care of it. And we don't want to say it's a utopic, self-healing system, but one of the things is is that it's not difficult to find where these strings of words come from. Um, And so any time that I've been plagiarized, it's immediately self-corrected, and I find that very encouraging personally. You selected a number of your pieces from your
0: website for <clears throat> the appropriately titled, and I have to say that I've thought this many times, <laughs> you're not fooling anyone when you take your laptop to a coffee shop. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, a title which by itself colors every subsequent visit to the coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> Uh tell us a little bit about selecting the pieces for publication from the web and did you revise them going into print?
1: I revised them um grammatically and also when there was some context that was lacking or for example if there was a link and I wasn't able to provide the link because it was of course in print then I would have to describe a little bit at what was the link and I you know wouldn't have had to do it if it was online. Uh, the pieces that I selected were basically... The 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 idea behind the coffee shop book was there are certainly enough books out there on writing that there doesn't necessarily need to be another one. But what I was interested in was showing basically a slice of this is what it is like to be a working writer now. I mean, I've been a working writer. I haven't done anything else but be a writer since 1991. And I've been a freelance writer since 1998. And during that time, I've done all sorts of writing. Um, I've written books. I've written magazine articles. I do corporate communications. The only type of writing that I really haven't done is screenwriting. So I have a, a range of experience, and I wanted to show what it was like to do all of that. So when I selected the, the pieces, they were the pieces that were relevant to this is what it's like to be a working writer now. And I'm very, very unromantic about writing. It's my job. You know, uh, to some extent, you you could say it's my calling because I can't imagine doing anything else and I really feel driven to be a writer. But at the same time, it's what pays my mortgage. It's what's going to put my kid through college. It's what buys me the little toys that I enjoy to play with so much. It's a very practical thing in my life. And I think that a lot of young writers or emerging writers, because not all emerging writers are young, um, think of writing as this holy thing. Um, or a special element of their life. And it can be that. But at the same time, if you want to make a living off of it, if you want to actually be known as a writer, you have to wrestle with these practical aspects. So that's what I do a lot in the book. It's funny about the coffee shop thing, because that was part of an article where I just said, you know, nine unwanted pieces of advice. And one of them is, you know, stop going to the coffee shop and pretending that you're writing. And, you know, just go home and write, because. It's obvious that the reason that you are in the coffee shop showing yourself writing is because you're doing the mating dance. And immediately, this whole piece was full of little controversial things where I was telling people, don't do this, do do that. But the thing that I got the most comment on was, I go to the coffee shop and I actually write. I was like, sure you do. (laughs) (laughs) This brings us to
0: your rough guides. Yes. You've written three of them. Mm Mm-hmm. The one one that really interested me is, is the rough guide to sci-fi movies. There are enough books on science fiction movies to to crowd us out of this room mm-hmm. and crowd our fine engineer out of the next engineering booth. The poor engineer. <laughs> the poor engineer. Why do we need another book on science fiction movies and what did you bring
1: to this that was different? I'm not going to defend whether or not we need another science fiction book. The reason that we needed another science fiction book was uh, I have a mortgage. That's my excuse for having it. But what I bring to the science fiction thing is, is two things. One, unlike many people who write science fiction movie books, I am an active science fiction writer. So I come with the perspective of having a bit of literary history from that. Additionally, I am a film critic. I've been a film critic since 1991. So uh, it's the two great tastes that taste great together combination. I'm a geek, and, you know, in science fiction, I'm a science fiction geek, and I'm a film geek. Mash them up, and I have a, a fairly unique perspective on uh, what's going on in, in science fiction film. What was fun for me was, when what we did with the book is we said, "Here's the canon." Here are the 50 science fiction films that are actually the most significant. Not the most popular, not the most important, but have, are significant for some reason or another. And... Um And I just had a ball writing about them. For example, when we talked about Star Wars, uh, there were two things I said about it. One is clear that this is the most important movie series in the last, you know, 30 years and that George Lucas is probably the most influential filmmaker of the last 30 years because everything that we do with film is he touches it. You know, post-production, sound, special effects, design, even cinema speakers are all touched by the hand of Lucas. On the other hand, he's a terrible writer and he's a terrible director. And that's straight through and you can see it in all the movies. And, it's, and there's a really interesting tension is that he's so influential and he's so important to film. And yet you go and you watch Phantom Menace. And I remember being there opening night when Phantom Menace came out and people were cheering. It's just been years and they've been waiting their entire lives for this. And then Jar Jar comes on And it's like the room was just got deoxygenated, you know, it was like it was it was fascinating. But um, so, you know, it's good to have that sort of perspective. And I think that that's what we bring to the book.
0: Wow, I'm really glad you said that. I was afraid when you mentioned Star Wars, you were going to say you, how, how much you really liked the, the writing in it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to have to say because
1: I like the writing in Empire, which has Lawrence Kasdan and Lee Brackett, you know, who were, who were fabulous, fabulous and writers. Lee Brackett's actually a
0: genre fiction writer. A genre,
1: genre fiction writer from, from way back. Way and back. she not only did science fiction, but she also did mystery. I mean, there was a woman who could write dialogue. yes. yes. I'm curious about your online money book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a story there. <laughs> Tell us what what happened to you to to inspire this. Oh uh, well, that was a, a situation where my uh, my editor my agent was talking to Rough Guides, and uh, Rough Guides had had a very successful internet book, um, Rough Guide to the Internet, which had sold like a million copies, and they wanted to extend that particular brand. And they said, "Well, online money seems popular." This is in 1999. And he said, do you know anybody? And my my, uh, agent, Robert Shepard, said, well, as a matter of fact, I know someone who is very versed in online stuff. And he calls me up and he says, do you want to do this? And I was like, oh, absolutely. And so he said, great, the gig's yours. So that was easy. Then I hung up and I looked at my wife and said, I have to go to the bookstore and buy a whole bunch of books on finance. Um, So I basically taught myself finance in three months and um, all the the online stuff. Now, the book was published in... uh, November of 2000, and they put me on my very first book tour, and the way that they figured it is, well, we will do your tour the week after the the presidential election because there will be a news vacuum there, you know, They'll be wanting to talk to you for lots a long time. And, of course, two things happened. One, when the book came out, the Internet bubble was collapsing, so no one wanted to put money online anywhere, even you know, for banking. And then, of course, the, the U.S. election strangely contested. And um, so I would go to these places for the interviews, and they're like, sorry, we just don't we, – we have no time for you. So it was it was basically a disaster. The book um, sold maybe 6,000 copies, and uh, it was just a horrible, horrible flop. But the, the bright side of that was rough guides didn't blame me. They were like, well, the election, what can you do? Um, and then they hired me to write the Rough Guide to the Universe, which was an astronomy book, which I was actually qualified to do somewhat, uh, and which I just had a ball writing, and which has done very well for them. You've, you're best known
0: these days for your fabulous science fiction. Thank I, you. I think you're just writing some the most superb science fiction out there. And But you're strangely absent from science fiction magazines. The usual uh, <laughs> clamoring up point is, is through the science fiction magazines. Right. Um, why did you
1: eschew the periodical world? Uh, to be quite honest, and this is... A horrible fact which is that I can't be bothered to buy stamps and uh, frankly, in order to submit to the three major science fiction magazines uh, you have to you have to print out your, your, your text and then you have to mail it off and you have to submit it. I don't own a printer. I haven't printed anything out since 2002. I don't, you know, I very rarely buy stamps. The submission process for me for these science fiction magazines, which is such, I didn't want to bother. Quite honestly, the, the first time I sold a science fiction story, I specifically sold it to Strange Horizons. This is back in two thousand one. It was a very short piece. It didn't back in the day when Strange Horizons magazine didn't qualify as a a, a actual publication for uh, professional sales, and I sold it to them specifically because I could submit it through email. After I won the Campbell. I was talking with one of the editors. It was the editor for Asimov's.
0: Uh, Could you explain what the Campbell Award is?
1: Campbell Award is for Best New Writer in Science Fiction. I won it last year mostly on the strength of Old Men's War, which was, of course, also nominated for the Hugo. So I won the Campbell Award, uh, which is given out by Dell Magazines, which publishes Asimov's and uh, Analog. And I was talking to the editor of of Analog, and he was saying, "Well, you should you should really submit a story to us because we would like to see it, and we think it would go really well for our magazine." And I was like, "I would, but you, I just I can't be bothered to print out a story." And he looked at me like I was literally an alien. But it's it, it's quite honest. Uh, nothing, almost nothing that I do I, I, I have printed out. I send all my manuscripts electronically. Um, when I sub- when I do submit stories, one of the places that I do actually send short stories now is Subterranean Magazine, because I can submit electronically. It's it's really a, a gatekeeper for me, and it's weird to be on that side of the of the gate, but there I am, and it's worked for me.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Subterranean Press. They're yep. a small press publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Schaefer is the the publisher. Right. Um. They published your laptop book. They also published Agent to the Stars. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how that book came to be a book and where it
1: first came to life. Okay. Back in 1997, I was going to go back to my 10th year high school reunion. uh, And when I was in high school, I had the reputation of, oh, he's the dude who writes the stories. And so I knew that if I went back uh, to my 10th year reunion and I hadn't written a novel, they would uh, basically fall on me and tear me apart because that's what my teenage friends would do. Uh, and so I decided that now is the time to write a novel. I haven't, hadn't written one before, and so I decided that what I was going to do is just take all the pressure off me and say this novel is a practice novel. I'm not really going to try to sell it. I'm not going to uh, write a topic that is of great importance to me. I'm just going to have fun with it because one of the things that I find people do is they say, I'm going to write a novel, and they decide to write it, and they pick a very important topic to them, and they don't have the skills to communicate that topic for the same reason why the first time you pick up a bat and hit a ball, you're not ready to play in the World Series. And so I picked a topic that meant very little to me, which the aliens come from outer space and decide to seek Hollywood representation to uh, acquaint themselves with humanity, and I had a ball writing it. And when, when I was done with it, uh, rather than sell it, I just put it up on my website um, as a free sample. you know. And I said to people, if you like it, send me a dollar. It's shareware. Between 1999, which is when I put it up, and 2004, when I told people to stop sending me money, I made about $4,000 from it. Because people just sending me a dollar or two dollars and saying, well, I really enjoyed that. Thanks for the read. Well, Old Man's War comes out. And... Bill Schaefer comes looking because Bill Schaefer is pretty much committed to finding young writers and locking them in to doing uh, stuff for him. And he saw that there was an entire novel there. And he said, if you're not doing anything with that, I would love to put that out as a limited edition. And my response to him was, I would be happy to do that on the condition that you allow the electronic text to remain up because it was my free sample. If People go, well, I don't know if I want to commit to actually buying one of his books. It's like, fine, read this novel, and if you like it, then you'll know you'll like the other novels. And not only was Bill happy with that idea, it was something that he saw as a way to get people to buy the the published book because he was doing a limited edition and if people really liked reading it online if they were going to basically make their eyeballs bleed reading an entire novel online then it was likely that they would commit to actually buying a, a hardcover edition of it and he was absolutely correct it was it was a great uh, advertisement for the published book we sold 1500 copies we had a 1500 run. Limited edition. We sold it out in, I think, about six months, which was very good for, at the time, still a complete unknown uh, novelist. I wonder, now you um, published uh, Serialized Old Man's War? Yes.
0: When did you do that? And, and Now, this was a very popular book. Yes. Um, and as, as we, you both noted before, nominated for Hugo. What made you put your
1: most popular, best known, Hugo-nominated work online for free? Well, because back when I put it online, it was none of those things. I wrote the novel, and at the time, I wrote the novel, and then came the time to actually sell it. And And I'm a very bad writer. Don't do the things that I do, honestly. But I was just overcome with the ennui of, oh, oh God, now I have to print it out. Now I have to send it out. It'll be a year before it gets rejected. You know, Then it'll come back, and I'll have to send it out again. And at the time, I was already publishing nonfiction. I had a very... Uh, remunerative uh, career as a freelance writer, I didn't need the ego boost of actually having the novel published in a in, in traditional form. So I was like, rather than submitting it, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to put it up on my website. The website had at the time had a couple thousand visitors a day. I was like, they'll enjoy it, they'll have a good time with it, and that's where it will go and that's where it will live. I had no intention of selling it. My assumption was that was where it would go to die. So in December of 2002, I serialized it a chapter a day. It finished around Christmas Day. And a couple days later, I get this email from Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's the senior editor of Tor. Uh, And he says to me, I don't know how committed you are to this whole electronic publishing thing. If that's really what you want to do, that's fine. But this is a really good book. And if if you'd like, I'd be happy to publish it for you. And my response was, well, okay. And then Patrick said, well, as long as we're buying one, we'll buy another one from you. Do you have another book that you have, you know, that you want to sell us? And, of course, I didn't. So I said, well, yes, I do. And I sold him um, Android Dream, the Android Dream, uh, on this one-sentence pitch. And the one sentence that I sold him on was, man solves diplomatic crisis through the use of action scenes and snappy dialogue. And he says, that's great. We'll buy that. So then I went online, and I had to take down Old Man's Work because I had sold it, and we decided that you might as well go ahead and take it it down. And I had to explain to people, I know I told you that I would have this book online, but I have to take it down because I kind of sold it. Um, And then immediately I got emails from my writer's friends, and they were all, die, die, you jerk, die – um, because, of course, it's not the way it's supposed to, it's supposed to happen. And, and statistically speaking, it's still not. Between now and um, between when I sold Old Man's War and now, there have been four or five books that have been sold in the same sort of way somebody found them on the net. Meanwhile, probably about 4,000 books have sold, been sold the traditional way. So if anecdotally it sounds like a cool story, you're still likely better off submitting the old-fashioned way.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the the novel itself, okay uh, you didn't decide to write the great American novel, no I, I, although I think in many ways you you might have <laughs> uh, you had a a, a more uh a mercenary idea, didn't you?
1: yeah, yeah, no, the more that I talk, the more it sounds like I'm a jerk so but this is true when I decided to after I'd written my practice novel um I decided well i i i did okay with this one. Now I want to write a novel where I'm actually trying to sell it. And so what I did was I went to the bookstore and I stood in front of the science fiction section and I asked myself, what do you see here? And what I saw, and this was early um, 1999, was a huge number of military science fiction novels i saw the three day three davids david weber david feintook um david drake i saw lots of other you know bane books with the the people with the big guns and um, shooting at each other and i was like well military science fiction seems to be selling i guess that's what i will write and then i asked myself well what military science fiction do i like And the one book that stuck out in my head, of course, was Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. And so I rather explicitly used Starship Troopers as the model for the arc of the story. And then from there, I wrote a military science fiction story. Now, what I did, however, was having committed to writing military science fiction, I decided that I was going to write a military science fiction story that I myself would want to read. So it has all the military science fiction elements, but... Uh, there's a love story for example there are lots of uh, places where there's dark humor there are things that appeal to me as a reader because um, if I'm bored writing my own book uh, I feel sorry for the for the readers who are going to have to read it later so that's that's how I ended up doing that you do something that's pretty interesting with this, just, and we
0: can discern that from the very title of the book itself. Mm-hmm. This is not a book where the, at least at the outset, uh, the we send our youthful
1: youth into space to be blown up. Right? No, we we send our old old folk out to be blown up. They get blown up real good. Oh, um, and, and that was that was the twist. I mean, it seems to me that if you had the opportunity to have older folks fight, and if they were physically able to do so, it would make sense to do it um, for various reasons. One, you wouldn't end up blowing generational holes in your society because when you kill off the young, you kill off the next generation as well. The older folks have lots of experience in life. They're going to be somewhat, hopefully, calmer under fire. They'll hopefully make better decisions. They would hopefully be better soldiers. Now, uh, If you could have the older, mature, um, experienced brain, wouldn't you prefer having that to the young, excitable, inexperienced brain um, that you theoretically get in um, youthful soldiers? Now, to be fair to our current crop of soldiers, once they are under fire, they gain the experience and they gain the wisdom of combat. But all things being equal, if you were starting off from scratch, which would you rather have? And I would rather have a more experienced brain. You've created a universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So tell us a little bit just about the process of
0: creating what in science fiction is called a universe, uh, against which uh,
1: a space opera will unfold. Uh, My basic theory is I make it up as I go along, and I fill in the gaps when people point them out. Uh, And I will give you a perfect example of this. In Old Man's War, our hero John Perry heads to the stars, but while he's on Earth— uh, the Earth of probably at least a couple hundred years in the future it looks suspiciously like early 21st century America, and so the book comes out and people start saying to me, "Thinking, hey, this is a good book, but what has happened to the Earth? why has there been arrested development? Because 200 years ago, you know, the eight, early 18th or 19th century looks absolutely nothing like the early 21st century." Um, and so it wouldn't make no sense that the early 21st century would, or 200 years from now, would look like now. Um, and I had had no good reason for that. I did that primarily because I was lazy. Um, but I said to people, you know, I have an, excell- an excellent reason why I did that. And in the Gus Brigades, we learn that there is, in fact, a reason why innovation has been uh, retarded here on, uh, here on Earth. There's a very specific reason, which, of course, you'll have to read the book to find out. But the reason that that happened, and which becomes actually a central theme in The Last Colony, which is the third book in this in the series, um, it happened because uh, somebody pointed out, gosh, your world seems awfully like ours. How are you going to get yourself out of that one? Um, and so this is how my universe building works for me. The other thing that I do a lot of, frankly, is I intentionally leave a lot of spaces on the map completely blank. And the reason I do that is, One, for future books and I have something else to explore. But the other thing is um, when you write a book, you're you're having a relationship with your reader. You don't know it, uh, but you do. And what the reader brings to the story is their own imagination. And you want to give them places where you allow them free play. You allow them to speculate what's going on in your universe. Uh, because what happens with that is that it gets them so much more engaged than if everything is just detailed and cataloged down to the last alien species. That's my opinion. Anyway, that's the way that I read. Um, so I intentionally leave a lot of things blank in my universe because I want the readers to explore and then I want myself to be able to explore later and not have to uh, have the experience of writing myself into a corner. Your universe uh
0: the the way the army is fought is there's two different kinds of soldiers. There's the Colonial Defense Forces and right. then there's the Special Forces. Right, And they have some significant differences and I wonder if you care to discuss the differences. You created the Special Forces in Old Man's War but mm-hmm. you didn't really explore them. So tell us a little bit about
1: uh, what how you set things up originally and then what you did next. Right. Well, the reason I set up the... Um, special forces special forces are basically they grown up children warriors they're they're cultivated in vats and they become they're bred as adults they become conscious with fully adult bodies um, and from day one they are trained to fight um and they're called ghost brigades because they are taken from uh the genetics of people who have signed up for the regular civil defense forces but who have died before they could be become real soldiers. There, were, The reason I made them uh, in Old Man's War was because they ser- served a purpose in the plot for John Perry, who is the main character. But the more that I spent time with them, I'm, the more I realized that they were interesting in their own right because what you end up doing was when you create these um, instant soldiers, you have an opportunity to make them be really... Uh, Amoral, for example, or they can do the things that someone who has had 70 years worth of lifetime would morally object to, and they wouldn't morally object to it because they're three weeks old or they're six months old. Um, And so in Ghost Brigades, we spend time with with these special forces, and we look at how they approach their job. And what's really interesting for me uh, is that they understand that they are made to do the dirty work of the colonial union, that they are doing the jobs that everybody else has moral issues with. For example, um, there's a there's a very big scene right in the middle of the Ghost Brigades where they basically do an unspeakable act, and it has to be done, and nobody else will touch it. And what's really interesting is that, in, in fact, these child warriors have morals, and they have ethics, and they understand what it is that they're being made to do. That brings to mind
0: uh, something that I think is really interesting in the way you write science fiction. I wonder if you care to talk about designing alien races mm-hmm. so, that they can, so that their physiology, biology, sociology becomes a plot point. Right. And you do this really well. You've done it a few times, and it makes your books exciting, and it really gets you involved in the science fiction aspect of it.
1: Right. Well, again, this is a matter of making things up as as I go along, particularly in the Ghost Brigades. There's, there's a character who I designed to be there in the opening. He was going to be in the first act, and that's all he was going to do. He was there to advance exposition. But as I was writing him, I realized he was a very interesting character. Um, and so later on in the book, I needed someone else to do um, more exposition. I brought him back in again and again and again. And as it turns out, at the end of the book, this character who was really meant to be, is alien character was really meant to be a walk-on character because of uh, how I ended up creating his species, becomes the moral center of this book. He becomes the person who tells the protagonist, you have to make your own individual choices um a lot of what the aliens come from is my own desire not to do and no offense to star trek not to do star trek aliens where star trek aliens are they're completely human except for the you know they've done something with the nose or they've done something with the ears and the reason the star trek aliens are like that is because you know they have human actors i don't have to worry about that i'm writing a book and so i want my aliens to be as alien as possible without completely losing the reader, um, and because of that, when you when you develop these completely alien creatures, you ha- you understand that they have completely alien motivations. And once you ask yourself what those motivations are, then as long as you are asking yourself those questions, then the next question is, well, why don't I incorporate that in into the plot? Um, one of my big uh, things as a, as an author is. I I think of my books as you know, as as pigs. The 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 joke about pig is that you can eat everything but the squeal, right? Um, sorry to all the vegetarians. Uh, but when I'm using my imagination to build out these universes, everything becomes fodder. If I'm not if I'm thinking it there has to be a good reason why I'm not using it. Now, there are a couple places where I leave things unexplained to some degree. For example, overarching all these books, there's an alien race called the Khonsu. All the other alien races and the humans are more or less technologically at the same level, and there's a reason for that that's explained in The Last Colony. However, on the edges of everything that's going on as this group of hyper-advanced, Uh, basically a noble race called the Kansu who are doing their own thing. um, And are they pushing these races towards a particular goal? Are they um, interested mainly because they see us as entertainment, or is there something uh, deeper that's going on? They exist on the edges. They are uh, mysterious. They are uh, used by me occasionally as deus ex machinas to get myself out of things. But basically, I find them very interesting because I leave them unexplained, um, and their motivations are mysterious, and that gives me a chance to explore those aliens further later on. You write these
0: spectacular, exciting space operas Mm -hmm. with battles and aliens, Mm -hmm. but when I read The Ghost Brigades, I'm thinking, boy, this
1: is a a book about babies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and <so laughs> it's yeah, well, and it's true. There, there are things going on. One of the things that's been very interesting about each of these books uh, in the Old Man's War series so far is that there's always a, been a reader schism. Um, with Old Man's War, the reader schism was, and it was between uh, mostly male readers and mostly uh, women readers. And the male readers were mostly, "Wow, you blowed up things real good." Which, of course, I do because I like to blow things up real good. Um, a lot of the women readers were like, You have a love story in there, and I really ap- appreciate it. And now, you know, one doesn't want to say that it's all boys, all girls, because, of course, there's lots of uh, cross connect between that. And I, I'm a male, and I wrote the love story in there. But there's a schism there. With Ghost Brigades, the schism is not male female, the schism is parent, not parent. And the people who are parents are apparently affected a lot more. Uh, through the book Ghost Brigades than the people who aren't because there's uh, questions of the the Ghost Brigades themselves, the special forces, are children in and of themselves. Uh, children play a critical part in the plot. You know, they come again and again and again uh, over the course of the story. So, yeah, I mean, that they, they, they do play an important role. And it's important to have that stuff in there. You want to have people be able to enjoy it on multiple levels. And again, this goes back to uh, as a reader, I want that stuff in there because I want I to be entertained by my own writing. And if you all you have are explosions and great battle scenes, that's fun. Don't get me wrong. The Android's Dream is mostly just battle scenes and people running around, for example. But with these books, there are, there are opportunities to explore some deeper themes even as you're just pulling people through the story. You know, Keep them entertained but also give them something to chew on on a higher level
0: your novels all feature uh the old man's war novels all feature this great device called the brain pal. Mm-hmm. Y- you give us a I'm wondering Thomas Dish fun oh. with your new head. <laughs> was that was was that some of the inspiration in Old Man's War there's a sequence where you get kind of the instructions for brain
1: pal. Oh no the the uh sequence for instructions for brain pal is based entirely on the fact that um one of my day jobs is doing marketing. Uh, and so I wanted to be able to incorporate uh, some of that marketing experience into uh, to the science fiction thing, so I I wrote this little brochure, your new body, you know, welcome, and um, that was that was just me having fun with another one of uh, one of my gigs, so that's that's basically where that came from. But the brain pal is is a really interesting thing. It's of course a computer that resides in people's brains, um, and what's really interesting is the reaction that the the um, folks who have it installed to their heads into their heads have to it. they're not entirely uh thrilled about having this voice inside of their head. If you go into the book, the things that they name their brain pals are usually something profane and just what is this blankety blank thing inside of uh, inside of my head? I personally wouldn't want to have a brain pal. I mean it's a great concept, but I'm worried that it wouldn't be secure and that there would be. Russian Viagra spam in my brain 24 hours a day. Um, and so that's so no brain pal for me personally.
0: In much the same way that I refused to get a cell phone until after I had left the corporate world. Right.
1: <laughs> now I didn't get a cell phone, frankly, until I, I uh, was going on a book tour. And if I didn't have a cell phone, I would have to pay outrageous hotel rates for phone calls. You know, That was my excuse for getting a cell phone. But there had to be an ostensible reason to have it. Your novels are also
0: just full of really great humor. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of snarky dialogue—it's—it's it's very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, before you can actually, before you can get the grin all the way on your face from one joke, the next one's already arrived. Right. So you're kind of in this constant. <laughs> <laughs> but it's—it's it's really enjoyable. Tell us who your
1: uh, dialogue champions are, if any. I mean, well, a lot of my dialogue champions come from. The world of movies. So, for example, Elaine May, who wrote Tootsie and who did a lot of lot of banter in movies in the 60s and 70s, and with Mike Nichols, who wrote The Birdcage in in the early 90s, for example, just great back and forth dialogue. I just thought it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, you go back to Ben Hecht, for example, and movies like His Girl Friday, just the the banter there or Philadelphia story, which is not written by Ben Hecht, but the same sort of snappy dialogue back and forth, you know, people hitting themselves so quickly before you can move on. Thin Man series. A lot of my dialogue is based on on movie dialogue for two reasons. One, because they really did a great job of the banter back in the day. And the other thing is is that people are familiar with that structure of dialogue. Often when you get to books, you'll hear people talk in complete paragraphs. And in fact, most people don't talk in complete paragraphs. We're talking, you and I are right now talking in complete paragraphs because we're on radio. But when we turn off the mics and we talk, we're going to overlap each other. We're going to have back and forth. It's all going to be fairly short sentences. And so you want to have your dialogue actually approximate, A, what people do in real life, and B, be what people are used to hearing when they go and they watch TV or they go and they watch movies. And so that is a, a great influence there. Among writers, people like James Thurber, people like Robert Benchley, people like Dorothy Parker, closer to our time, uh, certainly Heinlein's had, had a great flow um, with his dialogue that still seems contemporary, even though some of the language is now becoming a little bit dated. John Varley, I think, is a great uh, conversationalist. Away from science fiction, Carl Hyacin or Elmore Leonard. A lot of my structure of dialogue comes from outside of science fiction. And indeed, a lot of my influences, both literary uh, and cinematic, are completely outside of the science fiction field. And I think that that has made a difference in terms of the presentation of this particular work. Could
0: you talk a little bit about the politics in these books? If there's anything that closely maps to to the real world, then I think it's the the commentary on the politics in in these books. The government is essentially uh, very, very good at lying to everybody
1: (laughs) and lying within itself to...
0: (laughs) To everybody
1: else. Well, it's very interesting. The politics have been uh, a subject of much discussion. Uh, I will say that when Old Man's War came out, one of the things that amused me greatly was there was a review which said that this was a book that could only have been written after 9 11. Um, And in fact, it was almost completely written before 9 11. Uh, The only part of it that was written after 9 11 was the last chapter, which was like putting a bow on everything. What had happened afterwards was simply that a lot of the events that take place in the book and a lot of the questions that the book raises about personal responsibility towards one's nation, towards one's people, just came in sync with what was going on in in the real world, and I to some extent, I got lucky because that became part of within the science fiction community be, became part of the national conversation about what do we expect from ourselves and what do we expect uh, how do we view others. The politics i've been I've been very careful in one sense to not try to make my own personal politics, which if you've ever been on my website, you know, I have them. I have personal politics, and they're not necessarily particularly friendly to the current administration. But at the same time, I have a very large number of conservative readers for the Old Man's War series of your of your blog, or for the, for the series for the series for the series because Instapundent, Glenn Reynolds has been a champion of the books, and he and most of his readers are conservative. So I get quite a few conservative readers, and they find a lot of resonance in what I'm writing because I'm not really too much worried about the. Making what's going on in my universe match what's going on in this universe because my universe is constructed in a very specific way that fundamentally has no analog. But what does have analog in the current world is how people respond to their situation and what they find important at at their heart there These are political books to the to the extent that everybody involved has to make choices about the universe in which they live and how they're going to respond to events that are going on. One of the things that is absolutely true, you're correct, that the colonial union is, their primary concern is keeping humanity alive. And they're because of that, they're willing to do things that are not necessarily truthful, or they're willing to withhold information uh, in order to achieve an objective that they think is important. Now, the question becomes, Is the colonial union... The colonial union is, without a doubt, authoritarian. But the question is, in this universe, is an authoritarian universe... Or is this authoritarian government what is needed to keep humanity alive? And I personally leave that answer blank. I don't answer it. John Perry makes some decisions about it. But me, as the author, uh, I leave that blank and want the, uh, the readers to talk about it because I can see an argument either way. Now, personally speaking, if you asked me if I would want to live in a universe with the colonial union, I would be able to tell you yes or no, but the answer would pretty much be no. But I think that what's important is that you can argue both ways, and you can make a very cogent argument both ways that this sort of government is actually needed. And, the interest, and that's where there's an analog in this world, that there are enough people who can make an argument that they feel we need a more authoritarian government. We need something like, for example, a unitary executive because times now require it. And whether they do or not, whether it's true or not, is an entirely separate thing, but it is part of the national conversation.
0: One thing I really liked about The Last Colony was, and in fact all of these books, these books are really stripped down. They're lean and mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm wondering, do they start out bigger or do they do they start out small?
1: You... They pretty much start out the way you read them. Over the course of the three books in the series, there's been maybe an entire page worth of edits. Wow. Do
0: you do, you do a lot of revi- revision to get to that point?
1: No. What I end up doing is I do what I call a fractal draft, um, which when there's something that Uh, changes in, I write something and I need to go back and change, I'll make that change at the time. So what ends up is, um, I don't make a first draft and then a second draft and a third draft. I end up writing, saying, oh, I need to change this, changing it on the spot and then moving forward. So what we end up with is technically a first draft, but it has been constantly revised as you go along. And I think this makes sense because the reason that you had first drafts and second drafts and third drafts was an artifact of how you had to write when you had a typewriter or when you had longhand. Um, you couldn't just go back and change on the fly and just incorporate in. You had to go and have the complete work. With computers, you are very easily able to go back and make changes as you go along. Um, and so that's what I do. I've, I've never not written on a computer. So I've always this is the always the way I did it when I was in high school I had to turn in papers where the the teacher said I want to see the first draft. So i would write the paper and then I would go back and i would write a really crappy first draft that you know, so I ended up writing the sec, the first draft afterwards simply because she made me write one and I've never ri- I've never written more than one draft. But again, that's because the nature of how you can use computers changes the way that you can write. I personally can't Imagine writing not using a computer. I think of what people had to do back in the old days. They would, like, put, you know, they would tape new lines of dialogue over old lines of dialogue. They would have these pages that would have lines and lines on top of lines taped on each other. It's just madness, I I, it dry, I just go, a blank wall comes down trying to imagine me trying to write like that. Uh, I'm, I'm a product of the computer age. There's no doubt about that.
0: I'm wondering if you could tell me what you think the appeal of space opera is to a large audience, to a world that largely doesn't really have,
1: isn't in space and isn't going there soon. <laughs> I think the appeal is that it's, one, it's fun. To go back to Star Wars, one of the reasons that Star Wars was so huge in 1977 was that it had these big, beautiful battles, these wonderful special effects, just this huge imagination. Um, And we were coming out of a time from like 1968 to 1976 where there was a whole bunch of dystopic film. And um, in science fiction you had, you know, The Omega Man, you had Soylent Green, you had Logan's Run, all these films – and um, and here was this big breath of fresh air, and people remembered just how much they loved adventure. And that's what space opera brings. It brings adventure. And it brings adventure on a scale that no one else can provide because you have the entire universe to play with. And once you've been playing with the entire universe, it's hard to go back to a, a smaller, more compact size adventure. One thing that plays a big part
0: in The Last Colony is family. Uh, if the the if the Ghost Brigades is about babies, mm-hmm. The Last Colony is
1: about having a family. Right. <laughs> yes, we start with old people, we move to babies, and we end up with families. Well, family is important to me. I mean, it's. I can't imagine my life now. I'm married, I have an eight-year-old daughter. I can't imagine my life without them. And I think that this is also the case with most people. Most people are engaged in their families. Most people are engaged with the day-to-day life of, of getting through. And you want to incorporate some of that while at the same time retaining some of the action and adventure, partly because it raises the stakes. When In the last colony, it's not just John Perry could lose his life or Jane Sagan could lose their life. Their, enti- their family is at risk, not only their family, but the families of everybody else who is on, the, on this colony and it it makes a real difference. I mean, there's nothing I wouldn't do uh, to save my child if my child was in danger. You know, for example, it adds a adds motivation. It adds complexity to the reasoning that the characters have to do. It adds resonance to the acts that they eventually take. I think it's important to have it. Now, again, it may be that there's a schism um, with the readers, just as there has been with the other two books, where people who have families. Uh, find it more resonant than people who are, you know, single and, and fancy-free. But these are the risks that you you take. Um, this is a book that spoke to me, and I decided that I needed to write it, and uh, I'm happy with it. As as I read these books, I one of the things that just
0: constantly thronged at the back of my mind was I wish that the people who make science fiction movies that are often, by and large, Fantastically stupid <laughs>
1: uh,
0: would would like read a book
1: like this and say wow because because these books can make great movies have they been optioned uh, they have not been optioned we've had offers and for various reasons mostly relating to finances basically we've we've said no uh, what happens is you are often approached and uh, you, they make an offer which has relatively low amount up front, and then they say, but if it gets picked up by a studio, then we'll give you more, and if it actually gets made, then we'll give you more. And the problem with that is simply, A, I don't need the money that bad, so I'm not in a rush to just get them optioned to have them optioned. Um, and... Uh, it's a horrible thing to say, but the way that you tell whether people in Hollywood are sincere is how much money they throw at you. And if you are, they're throwing relatively low sums. Then it's not critical for them whether this gets made or not. I would rather have somebody. I'd rather wait for someone who is really uh, interested in making this into a movie and is willing to take a risk by saying, "I'm willing to put this much up front," uh, than someone who is just collecting titles. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? I am writing the follow-up to The Androids Dream, which is the other uh, series that I'm doing. It's called The High Castle. And uh, this is more or less in its embryonic stages. Yes, there is another Philip K. Deck reference there. And I like this series a lot because The Ghost Brigades has a lot of deeper themes running in it. The Androids Dream series is mostly just Having fun. Uh, the way that I I explained it to my to uh, the marketing folks is like if Carl Hiasen, uh wrote science fiction, this would be sort of like what he write would would write. And uh, so this current the first book, of course, had uh, the very first chapter had another a man trying to kill an alien diplomat through flatulence. Which was a, a lot of fun to write, uh, and which was a, a lot of fun to read too, because it was just—it was a James Bond opening, got people going. This book, *The High Castle*, starts off with multiple simultaneous uh, attempted political assassinations on a golf course, like you do. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like natural to me. Don't
0: give anybody any idea. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. We've been speaking with John Scalzi. His new novel is The Last Colony. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you. It's great to be here. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotron.com agony.